Well, this morning we continue our way, well, continue our way, we continue the habit of contemplating the resurrection and the season of Easter. We're not going to rush over it because it is the climax of history. It literally is the end of the story. So what else is there to think about? In Christ, the end of the story has come. Now, what's interesting is that the end of the story has come to us in the middle of the story. That's the tension that we live in here, that the end of all things has come into time. But what we witnessed at Golgotha and what we witnessed in the garden as Jesus came forth from the tomb is the end of all things. It was final judgment, except it was brought just on Jesus. It was the resurrection from the dead, except brought just on Jesus. And it is the ascension to the right hand of the Father where he dwells in eternal glory with the Father, except it was just with Jesus. I say just with Jesus, but I shouldn't quite say that because Jesus is our representative. So it is for us in him. In some sense, these things are past for us, and we live in the light of these things. We live in the glory of new creation. And that's why our word of exhortation this morning, that we might learn to live in light of that, that we would learn to live in the new creation. So we have to linger here. We can't just say, well, it's Easter Sunday, we remember, as if, as if the resurrection was some historical event. You know, that we remember, oh, Columbus Day, you know, we remember the day he sailed the ocean blue. Okay, we remember that, you know, and oh, Independence Day, remember the day they signed the Declaration? I mean, those are all good things, and they're worth thinking about probably more than one day as well. But that's not what we celebrate at Easter. At the resurrection, we celebrate the end of the story. And so we need to linger here. And so that's what we've been doing. Last week, we went all the way back to the beginning. We went to Genesis 1, 1 through 3. And thought about new creation by looking at old creation, by looking at the, the, the forms that were implanted, if you will, at the very beginning, in the first three verses of the Bible, and how that laid the tracks for what Jesus would do, but also to help us understand what has happened and what we are living in in new creation. And so today that continues, and that's what we'll be doing for the next couple of weeks, is just contemplating new creation. So today, our text is Psalm 72, a psalm that, on the one hand, is a psalm written by David for his son. Now, the little inscription there says, a psalm of Solomon, um, but it would better be read, a psalm for Solomon. Um, this is David writing a psalm. David is about to pass off the scene, and he writes a prayer, a poetic Beautiful prayer. When's the last time you wrote a prayer like this? You know? <laughs> and I, I, I say that not mocking you. I, I say it mocking me. My prayers are pathetic. Uh, my prayers are like, you know, off the, off the cuff all the time. And, you know, you know, listen to this, the way that David writes this beautiful son. This is his prayer for his son. Um, and his prayer for his heir, his prayer for his successor, uh, for the next king. David is, at this point, not clinging to the, to, to the position of power, but he's acknowledging, I'm passing off the scene, and he prays this prayer for his son. <clears throat> so this is a prayer of David for Solomon, and yet we know that even when Solomon was promised to David, I, I think of, uh, you know, when, back in 2 Samuel 7, when, 
when David was planning to build a house for the Lord, you know, and, and he's got all these great plans of what he's going to do for God, you know. And, uh, and the Lord shows up to him and tells Nathan, go tell David, what, what are you doing? Did I ask you to do any of this? And he says, no, David, you're not going to, I made you, I brought you out of nothing. You were, you were, you were a shepherd and I've made you now shepherd over my people. And I'm going to do something even greater for you. I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to give you a dynasty. I'm going to establish your name <clears throat> over Israel. And you will have a son. And that son will be a son to me. And I will be a father to him. And he will build a house in my name. Now, even there, he's speaking of Solomon. Because he says, when he sins, I will chastise him with the rod of men. You know, so he, he's, he's talking about Solomon. But we all know, now, now, I mean, I'm not saying David knew in the moment, but when we stand back in the New Testament, we go back and read our Old Testaments through the prism of Jesus Christ, we see things maybe you wouldn't have seen just standing in the light of the Old Testament. And what we see in 2 Samuel 7 is that that covenantal promise to David about a son who will be a son to God and God will be a father to him and through him the house will be built Yes, it was Solomon, and Solomon was the temple builder. He built the actual building of the temple. <clears throat> but we all know that that promise really finds its deepest fulfillment in David's greater son, right? In the Lord Jesus Christ, the son of David. And so here, too, that same pattern continues. Yes, this is a prayer for Solomon, but it's a prayer ultimately that can't be answered in Solomon. It's just so grand. Now, on the one hand, this is how politicians tend to talk. I don't know if you remember when Obama, you know, became, uh, became, you know, was elected and gave that grand speech or whether, I don't know if it was the one in his nomination or whatever, but you remember that we're going to stop the rising of the tides. We're going to stop this. We're going to make the world turn another way. You know, it was like, it was so over the top grand. But that's what politicians do that. Oh, now that I'm, now that I'm in power, here's all the good things that are going to happen, right? Every, every leader thinks that. Okay. Now watch what happens. They speak in hyperbole, if you will. But this hyperbole, which David prays for his son, is hyperbole that actually comes true. It comes true. You know, this is what uh, Tolkien told uh, C.S. Lewis. You know, he, he, he said to him, you know, C.S. Lewis loved myth. He loved all the, he loved particularly the, the, the Nordic myths, you know, the Icelandic myths. He loved all these myths. He loved fairy tales, you know, uh, um, he loved George MacDonald. Uh, uh, Tolkien loved the fairy stories as well. They loved all these mythological stories. And, and he told C.S. Lewis, well, but the Bible, the story of the Bible, Jack, that's what they called C.S. Lewis, is the myth made fact. It's the myth. It's the coming to fulfillment of all those amazing fairy stories, like actual life from the dead. New creation, the you know, you know, rivers that flow forever and that bring life themselves. And I mean, it's like it is, it's all those fairy stories, all those mythologies were like whispers and hints of something that people long for to be true, happy ever after. And yet we know is not true. But lo and behold, it is true. The hyperbole of Psalm 72, the hyperbole of, of the politicians is ridiculous, and we all know it's ridiculous. And when the politician gets up there and the people are cheering, we all know, yeah, but tomorrow I got to go to work and all the problems come with me. 
And when you're done, the next president will get elected and he's going to say it's going to be the best ever. And then we're, you know, we know this cycle. But here, here it comes true. In, in, not in Solomon, but in Solomon's greater son, even in Jesus Christ. So what we're reading here is a prayer for David's son and yet a, a real messianic psalm pointing forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what do we see in his reign? I have four primary things that I want us to see in this reign. And, and these kind of overlap together. Um, and really, it's worth just reading as a whole. It's a beautiful, it's a beautiful vision of the kingdom of God, of what Jesus Christ brings to us. That is to say, what we so as we as we launch into this psalm for a second, here's what I want you to think. We have a we run a risk as reformed folk that we view the work of Christ on a forensic judicial level, right? That there's an exchange that took place. Look, you were guilty. Uh, uh, blood had to be shed to cover this. You know, righteousness was exchanged. We have the dual transfer. I, I love all that stuff. That's all good. It's all true. But it, it can make the work of Christ sort of this transactional thing. Look, you, you were in debt. A debt had to be paid. Okay, the debt's paid. Okay, you're free. Uh, true, true, but thin. Good, good. Uh, but not the whole story. Jesus Christ did not come just to do this, you know, this debt transaction, to do this forensic kind of, okay, you had, I had to forgive you. Yes, it's that. Jesus came to restore creation and to establish a new creation, to establish a kingdom where the glory of God would flow over like the waters cover the sea. And your forgiveness is part of that. But it's not the whole thing. So this psalm should just cause our hearts to sing because it tells us, again, you are part of something glorious and cosmic. And you're really part of it. You're not the whole thing. You're part of it. This is what you get to enjoy. This is what your king did and what you get to enjoy. So first, what kind of king does he bring? He brings one of justice and righteousness. We live in a world of unrighteousness. We live in a world, even when people say they're righteous, we wait for the rest of the story. You know, we wait for the reports a week later. We wait to find out how it really unfolded. We live in a world of corruption. We know this. It's so frustrating, right? We all have to deal with this constantly. But the good news is that Christ has come to establish justice. And this is the prayer that he gives. Give the king your judgments. Oh, imagine if we had a king whose wisdom and judgment was God's judgment, that he could see exactly what needs to be done for the good of the people and then execute on it? Imagine if we had a king like that. Well, that's David's prayer for Solomon. And don't forget, Solomon prays for wisdom, and it is given to him. And your righteousness, your righteousness to the king's son, Solomon, but to the Lord, he will judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. The mountains will bring peace to the people in the little hills by righteousness. He will bring justice to the poor of the people. He will save the children of the needy and will break in pieces the oppressor. This burden that hangs over the people that weighs down their shoulders of oppression 
the Lord is going to come and he's going to break it. The king is going to come. And David's prayer for Solomon, and his, he's confident. He will, if you give him your judgment, O Lord, he will do it. Well, we know, by the way, Solomon you know, kind of buckles toward the end of his life. Again, this is why ultimately this prayer just is not fully fulfilled in Solomon. But oh, that there would come a king who would rule with the wisdom of God, who would bring forth the righteousness of God, who could see through the whitewashedness of the Pharisees and see that they are tombs filled with dead man's bones. See, he has the wisdom to perceive it and who can extend righteousness to the needy, right? Who, who doesn't break the tender reed or snuff out the smoldering wax, the smoldering flickering ember, but rather keeps it going. He knows how to manage that. And he manages it with justice and righteousness. This is the kingdom that Christ has brought. Because of his death and resurrection, this kingdom, not one day will be established, has been established and is being established and will one day be finally established. But this isn't just merely like a, oh man, a pipe dream hope. In some sense, the church is to now be enacting this. This king is seated on his throne. And you are his citizens, right? You are the citizens of his kingdom. I am the citizen of his kingdom. And therefore, we now are to live in light of it, as we said in Colossians 3. We're to bring to bear the virtues and values of our king. To seek justice and righteousness. To see the oppressed and to stand with them. To care for them. What will happen? They will fear you. As long as the sun and moon endure, indeed they will. Indeed they will. It's coming. It's coming. It's already happening in the church. Throughout all generations, he, that is this king, shall come down like rain upon, now the new King James says rain, grass before mowing. Everywhere else says mown grass, so I'm going to go with mown grass here. Maybe that's because I just mowed my grass yesterday and now it's raining. And even as I was driving here today, I just, I could, you know, the sweetness of a freshly mown uh, yard, in my case, uh, with the, the showers falling upon it. Um, and, and, and healing it and restoring it, right, and, and causing it to grow, you know. You, you mow the grass and the rains fall and the grass turns that deep green and begins to grow again. And that's what, that's what Christ is for us. For grass that has been mown down, right, through the sufferings and afflictions of this age. But Christ comes to bring justice and righteousness. He comes to bring relief to those who have been mowed down, to those who have been caught, to those who have been wounded. Christ comes to bring this balm of relief like showers falling upon mown grass for their healing and for their restoration and for their growth. In his days, righteousness shall flourish and the abundance of peace until the moon is no more. Again, this is why Solomon ultimately, or it's just such, again, it's kingly hyperbole. Let it be until the sun is no more. You know, well, yeah, it will actually be. Myth made fact. Hyperbole made fact. In Jesus Christ, he will come and establish justice and righteousness and relief and peace peace 
until the sun and moon are no more. There will be no end to the increase of his government and of his peace. So the first thing this kingdom is and that he brings is justice and righteousness and peace. Now, in each of these points I, I want to make, and I already made the point a little bit, I want us to reflect on the fact that the, the good news is this is the picture of the kingdom that you are going to inhabit for all eternity, and it's going to be unbelievably glorious. But let's remember that I said this kingdom began at the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore it is already begun. It is, it is built, it's being built, and it will be finally built. Think about it that way. Therefore, in each of these, we need to think, okay, this is the definition not of the king who will one day be king, but the king who is currently reigning. Jesus said to his disciples before he ascended, now all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Has been given to me. He is now seated at the right hand of the Father with all authority and power. Therefore, this kingdom is in effect now. Now, how do you and I live? We must live in the light of this. We are the agents now of Christ, the citizens of Christ, the church, that bring this kingdom to bear upon the world. We must live in righteousness and justice. The church, because we have Christ in us, the hope of glory, we must be like the rain showers upon the mown grass of a fallen and broken world. It will not be you. It will be Christ through you. But we bring, that's why Paul, even in that, even in that uh, I didn't choose that text for this reason, but in the Colossians 1 passage, it's interesting, he ends by saying, I fill up in my body what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. What a, what a brazen and ridiculous thing to say. But what he means is, is that though Christ's suffering is done and ended and he suffers no more, but now through his body, the sufferings of Christ, the wounds of Christ, the love of Christ are brought to bear upon the world through his church. That's what Paul sees himself doing. That's why Paul's willing to be arrested, beaten for the proclamation of the gospel, as his Lord was. I will be that for the sake of the world. And you and I, brothers and sisters, are to bring the justice, the care for justice, relief for the broken, the oppressed, and be like uh, fresh showers upon uh, the mown grass for the sake of the world. Secondly, Secondly, the second thing he brings is dominion. And here we're just repeating, the, in some sense, the fact I've already made. That is, he, his dominion, uh, we have in verse 8, he shall have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Those who dwell in the wilderness will bow before him. His enemies will lick the dust. So our king will have dominion over all creation. There will be not one little iota now, one little nook and cranny of the created order that is not under his authority. Again, go back to what he said to his disciples. All authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. Now, see, again, we even you talk about being conformed to the pattern of this world. Even we fall into the rut of thinking that the, the, the Republican Party or the Democrat Party or Vladimir Putin or, you know, whoever, Xi Jinping or, you know, whatever. Name your world leader. They, they're holding the reins somehow of things. that we're, we're kind of being swung around by their whims and their backdoor deals and their wheelings and dealings and their political interests. And, and I, I get that. I get that. But that's not the story of the Bible. The story of the Bible is that Jesus Christ has all authority over Xi Jinping, over Joe Biden, over Vladimir Putin, and over every other ruler from 
president or emperor or king all the way down to local town supervisor. All authority is given to him from sea to shining sea. It is all his. And his enemies will lick the dust. And so even as we see the enemies of Christ, I mean, think about this. This is true even as Jesus is being beaten by his enemies. He's forgiving them because he knows the day will come where those who remain his enemies will in fact lick the dust. He's absolutely confident in that fact. And therefore we can be too. We can be too. Therefore, we can suffer because we know the we know their end. I was just reading uh, the other day with the seniors. I think it's uh, Psalm seventy-eight, where he says, "Oh, the psalmist says, oh, I was so envious of the wicked. You know, oh, they're prospering, they're doing this, and nothing ever seems to bother them. They always seem to get away with it. They always seem to you know, say all the things I say. I was so envious of the wicked, and then he says later in the psalm, and then I went into the sanctuary of the Lord, and I saw their end." Psalm 73, I, I, I envied them until I saw their end. I saw their end. And once you see their end, the envy goes away. And the fear goes away. And the hatred can go away as well because they're, they're going to lick the dust uh, before the Son of God. And therefore, I don't have to grind my teeth over it now and wanting them to get theirs. And why this just isn't right. I can, I can relax and know that he will deal with it. So dominion, the second thing he brings is dominion. And everyone's going to bow before him. Those who dwell in the, in the wilderness but will bow before him. His enemies will lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish, that is on the farthest end, like for them, Spain, and the isles will bring presents. And even think about this, right? When the three wise men come and visit Jesus and they bring gifts before him, it's like already that's being fulfilled. These Gentiles from who knows where just show up. And like are dropping gifts at his feet and, and praising him. You know, it's like this is being fulfilled in, their, in, in Mary and Joseph's very presence. Yes, all kings will fall down before him and nations will serve him. So he, he brings dominion. And again, we are to live out that dominion. We are to live under the powers of this age, but as if Christ is truly the king. And Jesus sends his disciples out. When he says, all authority in heaven and earth is given to me, what's he tell us to do? Therefore, go make disciples of nations. That's what your job is to do. Your job is not to get people saved. You can't do that. But what you can do is declare. You're, you're the herald who goes into the highways and the byways saying, hear ye, hear ye. The new king has ascended to the throne. Everybody worship him. That's what you do. You bring the news. You don't have to convince anybody. It's a reality. And you're, you bring the news and herald the news, and then they got to deal with it. Now, I want, of course, people I love to bow because it's, you're going to either lick the dust or you're going to worship the king. So I want people I love to do that. So yes, I want to convince them to get down and, and, and bow the knee now. But, that, but our job as a church is to declare the dominion of the Lord. That's what we do. You need to know that Christ is seated on the throne and all will give an account to him. And of course, his dominion is one of justice, but also of mercy. He will deliver the needy when he cries, the poor also, and him who has no helper. This is the kind of dominion he brings. This is not a dominion of just breaking people. Yes, his enemies will lick the dust, no doubt. But again, he's the kind, he brings a kind of dominion that, that, that cares for the, the flickering flame and who cares for the bruised reed. 
He will deliver the needy when he cries, and the poor also who has no helper. He will spare the poor and the needy. He will save the souls of the needy. He will redeem their life from oppression and violence. And precious shall be their blood in his sight. He will not be like one of these kings who doesn't, you know, people are numbers to serve their kingdom. And blood shed, it's shed. It is what it is. We got to get ahead. We got No, not this king. Precious to the Lord is their blood. So first, he brings justice and righteousness. Second, he brings dominion and mercy. Thirdly, he brings prosperity. Here's where I, I remind you again, the prosperity gospel is not wrong in principle. It's just their timing is wrong, way wrong. So wrong that it's heresy. Okay, so prosperity gospel is heresy. But they're onto something. Christ comes with abundance and fruitfulness and prosperity. And yes, he wants that for you. And yes, he's going to give it to you. It just may not be now. And even the prosperity that we have now, even the, take the most prosperous person, you think, that, that prosperity will be like a, a, you know, the, the, the pennies that you're talking about whining in, your, in a particular person's fingers. I won't mention names so that if a recording is heard. But, um, but, but yeah, right. I mean, it'll be, it'll be like pennies. I don't care the greatest, the, the, the wealth of, uh, of, of Elon Musk. It'll be like a poor man's, you know. Compared to the prosperity. So even the prosperity gospel people don't know what prosperity is. This is prosperity. And this is what he comes to bring in time. In time. And so, again, we as the church have to live this out, not by seeking prosperity now, because you can't, you can't reach those levels of prosperity. But what this means for us now is we live as if we know it's true. If you knew, if you knew, if somebody caught you after church right here and said, hey, just so you know, uh, you've been given a $100 billion inheritance and it's a long-lost relative, and, and next week it gets cashed, and somehow you knew it was legitimate. I mean, you'd be taking everybody out for lunch. You'd be like, everybody, lunch on me. Like, let's go. What do you need? You'd just start finding things people need. You'd be like, here, take care of it. People are like, wow, you're being so gentle. No, no, trust me. You don't know what's coming. I can be generous because I know what's coming next week. Well, brothers and sisters, you know what's coming next week. You, you know you have an abundant prosperity, you know, uh, 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 treasury that's being given to you, this inheritance. And therefore, we can live in light of it. We can not cling to the things of this world. We can be generous with our time. We can be generous with our money. We can be generous with our friendships. We can, we can do this because we know what's true. So he shall live and the gold of Sheba will be given to him. Prayer also will be made continual for him and he will be praised. And there will be an abundance of grain on the earth. The tops of the mountains, on the tops of the mountains, the fruit shall wave like the trees of life. It's going to be so prosperous. Wherever you look, it's just going to be like just the bounty of creation just blooming forth and providing for his people. And those in the city, oh, they will flourish like the grass of the earth. And his name will endure forever. So the Lord is going to come and the kingdom that he brings is one of absolute because he owns the cattle on a thousand hills it's all his and brothers and sisters you we're told in the bible are co-heirs with the lord jesus christ you're not a tenth heir you're not a hey good news you're a one one hundredth or a one one billionth of the kingdom of god is yours you get a little share no you are co-heirs with the lord jesus christ just, just take that phrase home and meditate upon it and reflect upon it. And that's true of you. And now, how do you live in light of that? As Paul said, we've read it in Corinthians. All things are yours. You know why you don't have to envy anybody? 
because it's all yours. <laughs> Everything's yours. Suffering's yours and prosperity's yours. Life is yours and death is yours, Paul says. Everything is yours. So we don't have to fear anything and we don't have to envy anything because it's all ours in Christ. It's a beautiful thing. So live in light of that. And then finally, of course, glory. Verses 17 to 20. And his name shall endure forever. And this is just, when I think of the day in which we travel around from city to city, country to country, whatever that looks like in new creation, I don't know how we travel or what countries look like either. But you get the point. When we travel around in the new creation, imagine everywhere you went, the sound you heard was the sound of praise to God. And everybody you... I was just telling somebody, a friend of mine, uh, Justin Sherrod's uncle, Tim, is on his way to Albania this week to do some teaching in a church somewhere. And he's never traveled internationally. And I said to him, Tim, let me tell you something. Let me tell you something you're really going to enjoy. You're going to enjoy meeting Christians in another country. It is, I haven't had a lot of international travel, but I've been blessed to have a little bit. And to stand in Kenya and have brothers greet you as a brother and sisters greet you as a brother, to sing with them, sometimes in their language, is, it's, it almost brings tears to your eyes. You, you know, and I've had this chance in different countries. And I told Tim, you're going to love that. It's, it's, it's going to open your eyes to the kingdom in a very beautiful way. What do they speak? Is it Albanian? I don't know what language they speak in Albanian. Is it Albanian? You know, when you hear people praising God in Albanian, I just, I remember, I remember sitting in this upper room of this little Bible school in Nairobi and listening to them sing in Swahili. And not knowing what the heck they're saying and yet knowing exactly what they're saying. And just having to record it on my phone because I wanted to take it with me because it was so beautiful. And some of you have had that experience and it's such a wonderful thing. Now imagine, imagine that's all you know. Everywhere you go, it's brothers and sisters. And everywhere you go, it's the glory of the Lord. That's, that's the reality. And don't you see it already unfolding? I can go to Kenya and worship with bro brothers and sisters. I can go to China and meet brothers and sisters, as I have. Tim is going to go to Albania, and he will meet brothers and sisters there. And you have been places, and you meet brothers and sisters there. It's, it's already happening. Don't you see the growth of this kingdom? His name shall endure forever, ever. His name shall continue as long as the sun can't be Solomon. And it won't be, but it will be the Lord. And men shall be blessed in him, and all nations shall call him blessed. And again, it's already happening. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who does wondrous things. And blessed be his glorious name forever. Let the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. This is the kingdom that Christ has wrought, that he is bringing every day into fulfillment and that finally one day forever it will be consummated and done. May we live in the light of these things. May our glory, our praise, I mean our glory of God, fill the earth like the waters cover the sea. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the kingdom that our Lord Jesus Christ has established. He is the King of kings, the Lord of glory. And Father, we thank you that he is David's greater son in whom all hyperbole, 
finds reality, the myth, if you will, made fact. We thank you for that. And we thank you that we are part of it. May we live in the light of it. May we be justice seekers. May we care for the oppressed and the downtrodden. May we be those who bring mercy to the afflicted. Father, may we bring to bear upon the world the dominion and reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. May we live in light of the prosperity that we know is already ours in Christ, removing envy and finding generosity. And Lord, may our praise, the praise of you, our one true God and your Son, our King of kings, Father, by the power of your Spirit, fill the earth like the waters cover the sea. We ask this all for your glory and honor. In Christ's name, amen.